1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Indian Religions here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan. More about me at rajbalcaron.com. More importantly, I have a very special guest today indeed. um, I I issue a warm welcome um, to uh, Nea Segal, who is um, Associate Director of Research at Pew Research Center. Uh, She specializes in the role of religion in society and politics around the world. We are here to speak about a groundbreaking, landmark, very important study that was conducted pertaining to the religions of, you guessed it, India, (laughs) called uh, Religion in India, uh, and the subtitle of the report is Tolerance and Segregation. Uh, Neha, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Raj.
1: This podcast is about public education, but I'm sure people are aware that um, it's more so about my own education as I ask these naive questions. And so the the public is educated sort of as an occupational hazard of me asking these naive questions. So what is it that you do?
0: Broadly, the Pew Research Center does empirical research in the social sciences. And uh, empirical research so broadly defined could include survey research, That's primarily my interest and my specialization, but we also do other kinds of quantitative work. For example, demographic research. We'll look at census data from around the world and see how different populations are being affected and and so on. My specialization, as I mentioned, is in survey research. And the study in question today is the result of roughly 30,000 interviews with Indian adults nationally. And the results, the sample is drawn in such a way that the results of this study are generalizable to the Indian public. So when we're going to when we're going to be discussing the results of the study today, I'll talk about it as X percent of the Indian public says this or that, but it's based on a sample. But the sample is scientifically drawn.
1: So you've surveyed thirty thousand folks from India who are um, 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 uh, whose proportions are indicative of the population at large. So that's correct. Right. Great. And you survey them about a variety of really fascinating, fascinating information. Before we go on, uh, Neo's going to tell us about the polling, about the process, uh, maybe even point out some trends. But it is the work of other uh, folks to actually interpret and with respect to religious studies. So we're clear on the podcast, we're presenting the findings of this groundbreaking research. And I strongly suspect I'll have uh, subsequent questions. Um, Scholars and speakers on the podcast to share their take on what this means. Um, tell us a little bit. Uh, study Puranas and epics. So you know, there's always a backstory. There's a story behind the story. So, what's the story behind this? How how did you lead up to doing this? Was it an easy process? Was it a difficult process? Is it something you always wanted to do? Like, tell us how this came into being.
0: Thanks for asking that question. People don't, don't normally ask the story behind the story, but boy, there is a story <laughs> behind this story. Forgive
1: me, I love stories.
0: <laughs> so do we. I mean, I, I love stories, but I like telling them through data. So this one not based on data. Uh, at the Pew Research Center, our goal is to generate data to inform the public debate. One of the subjects we think is crucial to understanding societies and how societies function is religion. And therefore, we dedicate a good amount of our resources on studying religion in an objective, uh, quantitative way. So roughly, maybe about 12, 13 years ago, I started at the Pew Research Center and uh, we received funds from the John Templeton Foundation to do religion work you know, around the world, ask people around the world about their religious identity and so on. At that time, my boss, um, who is uh, the, uh, who's heading the religion research unit, you know, told me, what could we do in India? And, Ahab? and I said, oh, nothing. <laughs> because I felt, why don't we, you know, it's a large and complicated country, It's so difficult to do research in India. It's so difficult to tell that story. You know, it's risky to tell that story because that which is true in India also, you know, the opposite is also true. I didn't say that some famous person (laughs) said that and I just quoted.
1: Anyone who's been to India said that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) And I said why don't we just study Germany <laughs> you know, it's so much easier we could just get it done you know in a month why why do you want to you know do work in India it's so it's so fraught with risk anyway 12 years go by uh you know we'd studied Europe we studied sub-saharan Africa we looked at countries in the Middle East uh, we did work around the world and finally we said all right what could we do in India and at that time I felt. Okay, uh, you know, this team has a lot of experience studying religion around the world. We've learned a lot, you know, over this last 12, 13 years. I think we're ready to tackle India. But, uh, you know, in the <laughs> you,
1: you, you needed all of that practice studying uh, uh, much more systematic religions in <laughs> order mm-hmm. to tackle India. Exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, people ask me, how long does it take to get to India? And I say 12 years. <laughs> so, so we felt, okay, we're ready. And if we, you know if we invest the time and resources into this large and complicated country and give it the proper treatment we can do this so we spent roughly three years on this project and you know depending on your perspective you're an academic three years feels like oh what that's like three seconds uh but you no, know I, if you're the...
1: I, also, I also work in the private sector in various capacities and three years is a long time for a work project
0: for sure i mean if you work in the private sector then three years is the eternity So, but for us, like normally we do, uh, you know, we have teams that work on projects that last two weeks. We have teams that work on projects that last month or maybe a year, but three years is a long time for the peer research center. But we've invested the time because we felt it was really necessary. We did a whole lot of qualitative work in India to understand the context, inform the questionnaire development. It took more than a year, it took about two years for us to just do the background work to launch the launch the survey research, so that's sort of just the background.
1: I really appreciate you you, you um, answering that, and and I'm glad that I asked. Uh, I suspected, like all things Indic, um, they are uh, beautiful and complex, <laughs> and so. I suspected it took a little bit of um, of preparation. Um, uh, Twelve years is also, I believe, the length of the, the, the of Shanaka's sacrifice during which the Mahabharata was told. There's a twelve-year sacrifice at the frame of the Mahabharata. So that's See, a long time. See, there's a poetry to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, just a very quick... Uh, anecdote to, to share how how different time works at the academy versus how time works <laughs> in the private sector. Um, one of the projects that came onto my uh, my, my, my plates was a project commissioned by the um, the um, oh it's an armed forces organization globally they do IHL um, but uh, basically what they wanted uh, was a report on. Uh, 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 combat ethics in classical Hindu texts, like how are people allowed to engage in force in the Mahabharata and the Arthashastra? Um, it, it's a committee for the Red Cross. That's what it is. And so, great. So, basically, uh, myself and a research collaborator who does defense studies, basically, we had uh, two months to come up with a comprehensive annotated bibliography, uh, extra, extracts from all classical Hindu texts, and a ten thousand word paper. <laughs> so yeah, time works a little different. Um, anyhow, tell us a little bit about this qualitative research to prep you. What was that like? Or what kinds of things did you engage in or ask or find out before you even decided what questions to ask?
0: We conducted a series of focus groups throughout the country. And that's basically, you know, like a fancy schmancy way of saying, we just gathered a group of people together in a room. We selected them on certain bases, like gender or age or religious background. And then we asked them just some open-ended questions and asked if they could just discuss the question uh, with the group. And we did this in several states throughout the country. And we did groups with Muslim respondents, Hindu respondents, Christians, etc., and we did them in the north, we did them in the south, and we were asking very similar questions. What does it mean to be truly Indian? You know, what, is, what are the requirements to be truly Indian? What's the connection between religion and national identity? How do you feel about interreligious relations in India today? And we did these to basically get a sense for how willing the Indian public is to engage with these thorny issues. How openly do they talk about their opinions? Is there a hesitation there? And then what do they say? What language do they use? What story are they trying to tell us? The answer to the first question, how uh, willing is the Indian public to engage with these thorny issues is very simple. They are very willing (laughs) and they really wanna tell their story and they are enthusiastic about telling their story. And this was very heartening for us because we felt, wow, this is a a people who wants to tell its story and their story has been told a number of times uh, throughout history, right? the Indian story has been told in one way or another way, you know, scholars and academics have told their story through film, through art, uh, through academic studies and so on. But we really have an opportunity here, right? we can talk to the Indian public and have them tell their story. So, and this is a story that needs to be told because no matter where we went, North and the South, we started noticing that Indians had a way of telling their story, right? So you know that India is a complicated, large country. Everybody knows that, right? There is a common thread that runs through India. And if you look for that common thread, you will find it. So it was very apparent in the focus groups that people in India do love the diversity of their country and they talk about that with great pride, right? And it's very important to allow them to express that pride in the diversity of their country. That is how the country was conceived of, right? And people of all religions can live here, religious freedom is important. But that's not enough. That's the surface. It's a deeply held belief, but it's the, sur- but it's the surface. Then when you start asking them further about interreligious relations, et cetera, you find that the picture immediately gets complicated and what diversity and tolerance means to Indians is in fact more complicated than that. Uh, So we felt let's design a questionnaire to be able to tell that story and let's use the terminology and the words that Indians are using themselves to then devise a questionnaire that would be more closed ended so that's just there, um, a bit about the qualitative
1: work. Brilliant. As you were speaking, you sort of followed up on, you, you preempted certain points and followed up with precisely the thoughts I had. The question about, well, how thorny it is, I thought to myself, well, thorny for us or thorny for them? And you answer that. And then you were like, oh, it's been told a number of times. But, and I thought to myself, but has it been told by Indians mm-hmm. on, the, uh, uh, you know, on the ground? Um, not till now. Right? That's part of what's so groundbreaking about this research. Um, so, just just uh, repeat for the audience how many questions there were. And then, uh, what did you do with the questions? What was the, what was the information gathering process like?
0: Sure. So, there are roughly 100 questions. That includes questions about demographics, it includes some benign questions that we ask usually as a warm up, um, you know, because you don't want to, the first question you ask the respondent shouldn't be like a sensitive question, right? You got to get them a little more pumped up. So we begin with some general, how's your life going? How's, what's your economic situation? And then we build up in, in the study. Uh, the surveys were conducted by Indian, Indian interviewers and they were all sort of local residents in the South. They were conducted by interviews from the interviewers from the South, similarly in the North. Uh, we hired a field staff. We trained, helped train the field staff. A number of staff members from my team made several trips to India. Uh, to help train the field staff, help them see that the vision of what we're trying to achieve. And then the field work launched, and we uh, wanted to wrap up the field work fairly quickly because we feel the longer the interviewer, the longer the interviewer stay in the field and created the incident something will happen and we'll have to feel, pull the field force back. So it took roughly about mm, six months or so to complete uh, all of the interviews. And then once the data came, came back to us, we do a series of quality, uh, quality checks and uh, checks of, to make sure the interviews were conducted in a way that you know, it's consistent with our field protocols. And then once you have the, uh, the data that you feel relatively comfortable with, the storytelling process begins. Uh, and that's where I really want to acknowledge the role played by our advisory board. I am not an India expert. I happen to have been born in India, but I, have, I don't consider myself an India expert. That expertise was provided by six members of our advisory board who, do, who are experts in India, who have spent their entire life studying, entire career studying in India. They uh, then helped us craft some of the context behind the data. Now, the data is very powerful, can tell a very good story. But if you're not careful with data, it can tell a partial story. So they helped us crop some of that context, looked at some of the early drafts of the stories we were telling, helped add on to that. Uh, and then finally, we had a massive doorstopper report, which is over 200 pages. So if you have trouble sleeping at night, I highly recommend it. Save you a lot of money at the doctor. But if you're only interested in sort of the key highlights then the first 40 pages was basically the key takeaway stories that we find in the data.
1: So this um, the consultancy, this this sort of panel of experts. uh, Are they uh, religious studies scholars? Are they what sort of expertise do they bring?
0: A number of them are have a a background in in religion. Ajay Verghese is scholar of Hindu Hinduism uh, and Hindu theology. But we also have people with political science background, Devesh Kapoor as uh, a political scientist, Shreya Aya, who's an economist. So what we try to do is assemble a group of people who have diverse backgrounds and interests. They don't, they don't have to have quant- quantitative background. Devesh does, Ajay does not. Uh, but We find that mix to be uh, very valuable because somebody from a qualitative background or an economics background, political science background, might offer a very different perspective and it's that diversity of perspectives that uh, that we consider very valuable from an advisory board
1: there's a wealth of data to be engaged Um, uh, perhaps one place where we can um, one place where we can dive in is in the subtitle of the report there is potentially a subtitle in the report i have to say this is might sound a little odd Um, (laughs) Much of the report's findings didn't particularly surprise me, but I'm not an ethnographer. This isn't when I perhaps if this is what I did with a particular methodology with particular studies in mind, perhaps it would. But in terms of just speaking to scores and hundreds of various people related to Indic thought, culture, practice, a lot of it doesn't particularly surprise me. Some of it did. I imagine that much of it will intrigue or surprise most readers, but perhaps let's talk about the frame, this religion in India, tolerance and segregation. What does that connote?
0: It connotes one of the main findings and the finding we actually lead with in the report. And that is that in India today, there are two sentiments that are prevailing in the population. And to a number of observers of India, particularly for a Western uh, observer, these two sentiments may seem contradictory. But to Indians, they are not. And in some ways, this is a, not just kind of a reality in Indian life. And I mean, there's contradictions in every society, but it may reflect a particular understanding of tolerance. So let me unpack that uh, a little bit more. We find that Indians overwhelmingly are proud of the diversity in their country and they value tolerance as a national value as well as a religious value. They tell us that uh, respecting other religions is very important to being truly Indian. And they tell us that respecting other religions is a very important part of what being a Muslim means to them or what being a Hindu means to them. At the same time, they tell us that they live their life and they prefer to live their life in a religiously segregated bubble. So they are strongly opposed to interreligious marriage. They mostly make friendship circles within their own religious group. And for a significant section of the population, they would also rather live in a segregated neighborhood. They would rather not have a Muslim in their neighborhood if they are a Sikh or a Hindu, right? And for Muslims, they would rather not have a Christian in their neighborhood. So now the question is, well, how can you say that you are tolerant of others, but then also want to live a segregated life and want nothing to do with other people? Aren't those two uh, concepts antithetical? And certainly, if you think from a Western perspective, where America aspires to be a melting pot society, Canada aspires to be a salad bowl, right, where people either sort of Melting pot society, everybody mixes up in a salad bowl, they retain their separateness, but they're still mixed up in some way. India does not aspire, Indians do not aspire to that concept of pluralism. They seem to prefer a society that resembles more a patchwork quilt or a Thali model where, yes, many different types of people share a country. But the lines among those groups are drawn in the sand, and those are not to be crossed. And they prefer to keep it that way. So it's this concept of good fences make good neighbors, this idea, stay out of each other's business, right? And that is our concept of pluralism, right? So this is what I think uh, may have uh, surprised a number of Western observers of Indian pluralism.
1: It's, it's so fascinating to hear you speak about this. It's not my place to interpret this data, but for myself, perhaps. Um, but, it, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all. And it, it, personally, I see um, different uh, analogs or manifestations of this human principle, even in Toronto. Toronto is probably statistically the world's most diverse city in terms of, you know, over half of. The people in Toronto are not from Canada. And there's uh, uh, (laughs) tons and tons of various languages spoken, right? And yet you see this, you see this all the time, this sort of impulse towards having a community that's bound by certain parameters. Sometimes it's religion, sometimes it's not. Certain neighbourhoods where certain kinds of people will not be in certain neighbourhoods, that's just the way it is. And so it's utterly fascinating to see this spelled out uh, but thank you for commenting on this uh, this apparent tension. One of the questions that comes to mind is the extent to which this is a tension for for academics, or if it's a tension for those who live in that space. Would you say a little bit about that, perhaps?
0: Sure. From an academic perspective, you know, it, it depends. Like people who study pluralism and plural societies, you know. They, it, it, somehow, it seems obvious to say this, but it just hasn't been part of the dialogue so far. There are many models of pluralism right, around the world. And for some reason, everybody always wants to use a food metaphor <laughs> right, to describe pluralism. It's a melting pot, it's a salad. So, you know, so we go with the food metaphor and we say, okay, there's also the Thali model of, of pluralism, which has previously just not been discussed uh, as much in the academic literature. But when it comes to people's lives, right? Segregation is not anti- antithetical, right, to, to tolerance, For at least for Indians and their attitudes. And it's very clear in the data. People live segregated lives, they still commit uh, to tolerance in the same way that people uh, who live less segregated lives. So this part is really clear in the data. But we also find that segregation in India today is highly tied up with politics, right? It does have a, an influence on, on the way Indians conceive of their national identity, who they vote for, how they vote, uh, and some of the political dialogue that, that's taking place in the country. So, you know, that's an important facet to remember as well. I don't want to whitewash uh, the implications of segregation in Indian society and say, oh, it's not antithetical due to uh, pluralism, so we're done here. But, because there are, right? There, there are tensions that arise from segregation and its close ties with politics and national identity in India today.
1: Would you comment on two or three of the points that were really surprising, perhaps, or or, or noteworthy, shall we say, in terms of your findings?
0: Surprising, again, depends on your perspective. Uh, I mean, again, if you um, live in the United States or in Canada and Follow, you know, what the d- discussion and debate is uh, as far as religion and the public sphere is concerned. You know, in the in the U.S., uh, every year at around this time, we're we're in that time, so I'll I'll comment on this. Uh, you know, every year, I don't know if it's going to happen this year or not. There's some controversy about Christmas, right? Whether it's the Starbucks cup or what the department stores are doing or something or the other, like Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, you know what are we going to go with this year, right? Uh, So the fact that in India, right, the celebration of Diwali, of course, the vast majority of Hindus celebrate Diwali, but so do nearly a third of Christians, right? And so do nearly one in five Muslims who are telling us that they actually celebrate Diwali. The permeation of religious belief, right? So you have um, 77% of Indian Hindus who say they believe in karma, but so do an identical share of Muslims. 77% 77% of Muslims also say they believe in karma. A third of Christians saying that they believe in the Ganges' power to purify. This is a quintessential Hindu belief. Like you might say karma is pop culture, you know, whatever, yoga, everybody goes to yoga now. So, But, but the Ganges and the purifying power of Ganges, that's as Hindu as it gets, right? So you see this permeation of religious belief and religious practice that somehow seems to cross these lines that are laid in the sand by people as far as their communities are concerned. And depending on your perspective, that can be a really fascinating um, part of Indian religion
1: that's well, absolutely fascinating on the one hand you're sitting there looking at the cookie cutter world religion textbook, and you know you might teach okay well you've got this indic worldview that's uh, samsaric cyclical in nature then you've got this abrahamic worldview and you know whether well, these three staunch abrahamic faiths and oh just don't look at this uh, this research report otherwise <laughs> that may confuse you because look at all these muslims who believe in reincarnation what to do yeah so on the one hand uh, or 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 the purifying power of the Ganges. What do you mean? I mean, in, in Islam, there's only one divine, and it's wholly transcendent. And how could this be possible? Like, what? But this is this is we, we rub up against this 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 tension between uh, theory and practice, between intellectualization and experience, all the time. Whereas it can be imagined that there are folks who are local uh, to the Ganges or the sphere of the Ganges, where there is in the air, in the zeitgeist, in the culture, this reverence for the Ganges that people imbibe irrespective of what their, their scriptures might say or their religious leaders might say. So there is this fascinating tension. But as I say, I have the luxury of being an armchair uh, anthropologist <laughs> and a professional textual scholar, so I can code switch for this. But if I was a professional anthropologist, I'd probably be very confused by much of what this report says. <laughs> um, what else what else comes out that's that's really surprising pertaining to how religions interact or, or or think of each other or you know I don't want to put words in your mouth but what else comes to mind to talk about
0: yeah so this this next one that i think is important to mention is somewhat more political than than religious well it's religious but everything everything is politics right uh, and that's the issue of conversion so this issue has been talked about quite a bit in the indian media it's talked about regularly politics with anti-proseltism laws, et cetera. In India, you have an interesting mix right, of uh, religions where you have it, religions like Hinduism and Sikhism that are non proselytizing right, at least in their inception. And then you have Christianity and Islam that are proselytizing religions and have a kind of a ritual conversion practice that, that is, isn't found in some of the other religions. So then you have this tension, right? If one's a proselytizing religion, the other one's not, how do the two interact? is a non proselytizing religion at a disadvantage. So resulting from that you see uh, anti proselytism builds in India anti conversion laws and so on in several states. But so far we don't have any data to show what is the level of conversion that's happening in India, where is it, right? So this study, because of its large sample size, Gave us an opportunity to look at the level of conversions. Right? And the way we do this is we ask people, in what religion were you raised? And then we ask them, how do you currently identify? You compare the two, you get the rate of switching uh, or, or religious conversion. So here are the results. The vast majority of Indians, and by that 98% or so, retain the same religion in which they were raised. And among Hindus, there is no change within the lifetime of the respondent in the share who were raised Hindu and the share who are currently Hindu. 82% were raised Hindu, 82% are currently Hindu. And that's true for other religious groups as well. Overall, we find that the changes that are taking place to India's religious landscape are not as a result of religious conversion. They're actually as a result of differences in uh, fertility rates. That's a separate matter. Right? Let's get back to conversion. Among Hindus, uh, they lose roughly just under 1% of people um, that we found in our survey who were raised Hindu, but no longer identify as Hindu. But they also gain 1%. So Hinduism is a non-fossilizing religion, but you do find that there is roughly 1% of people who say they were raised in another religion or they didn't have any clear religious identity when they were growing up, but now identify as Hindu. That includes a big share of people who are married to Hindus. So that's just that 1%, right? So among Hindus, it's a wash. They're gaining as many people as they're losing. Christians do show some net gains because of religious conversion, right? They are, but not very much, right? So it's 0.4% of the population, of the adult population who were raised Hindu, but are now Christian. So about less than half a percent, right? And that's the only group that shows that kind of change. Uh, but it's not very big. It's 0.4% of, of, uh, of the total population. Tends to be regionally concentrated in the south of the country. The vast majority of Hindu converts to Christianity are in the south of the country. Some in the east, roughly 16% in the east, 75% in the south. Elsewhere, it's a very, very small segment uh, of the population. They mostly tend to be uh, Dalits or belong to scheduled tribe, particularly in the east or, isa, or West Bengal. Right? they tend to see uh, discrimination based on caste as a bigger issue than Dalits overall in India. Half of them say discrimination based on caste is a very big issue in India. So some of the narrative around religious conversion, of conversion taking place from Hinduism to Christianity uh, among Dalit communities is true. Yes, it is. But the scale of it is quite small. Uh, 0.4%, especially when you compare with the level of religious conversion that we have measured in other countries, including the United States, Europe, et cetera, where it reaches double digits uh, of people switching religions. So especially when you compare with other countries, the scale is is quite small. So depending on your perspective and what you thought uh, would be going on with conversion in India, I think this could be a surprising finding.
1: Speaking of this uh, difference in, in the South, uh, for example, in this case, uh, what other elements of regionality uh, come up in the survey or in how the survey was conducted? What, uh, what languages do you use? What does
0: that look like? Yeah, so the survey was conducted in about 17 languages, including English, although English is very, very small. Portions so southern languages, northern languages spent a lot of time, uh, you know, working on uh, the translations for those languages with professional linguists. The regional differences in India are fascinating, and uh, you know, they, I can tell this story in many ways. But one that I think really stands out is the north-south divide. That north-south divide uh, is present politically; it's very strong politically, but also in terms of identity and religion. So we find that, let's begin with the religion. India is not a country that's secularizing, right? We, or that's losing its religion or that people are becoming less religious. Generally, you find as countries advance economically, or at least that's what we've seen in Europe, they tend to become less religious. That's not the case in India. Indians continue to be religious, despite the fact that the country has economically uh, made a lot of progress, especially in the last decade. In the South, you do see some evidence of of, uh, lowering the importance of religion, not to the point where the southerners are not religious. They're still religious, but there is a decline uh, in the South and southerners overall being less religious than people in the North. Accompanying that is a political divide, which is quite big. The North tends to vote very differently than the South. And the North I can broadly define as the Hindi belt state, which includes uh, states in the central part of the country. Uh, BJP, that's a ruling party currently, tends to get a large vote share in the northern and central part of the country. It doesn't do as well in the south of the country. Right? The, the difference is huge. You get BJP is barely getting uh, maybe twenty percent of its vote share, uh, vote share in the south, but it's getting a majority vote share in the northern and the central parts of the country. And for Hindus, what does it mean to be a Hindu, right? and, and and what's the connection between Hindu identity, and Indian identity, those questions also yield very different results in the south of the country and the north of the country. In the north, there's a close connection in people's mind between Hindu identity and Indian identity. The majority of Hindus in the north say it is very important to be a Hindu, to be truly Indian. That sentiment is a lot less prevalent in the south. So this is a kind of what's going on in India. They religiously, it's the same religious group, Hindus, right? But how they conceive of Indian Hindu identity varies dramatically between the North and the South. And then consequentially, the tie between Hindu identity and national identity varies uh, quite a bit between the North, of the country, and the South of the country.
1: Fascinating. Was there anything else that really surprised you about the data? or, or uh, anything else that stands out in terms of a story the data tells prominently?
0: I think caste segregation is an, is another facet, um, which, I mean, caste remains a very dividing line in Indian society, a line of segregation in Indian society functioning much the same way as religion. Uh, people prefer to live their lives within their caste. That, of course, was the inception of caste. It continues to be the case, so People are strongly opposed to intercaste marriage, and they say that it is very important to stop intercaste marriage. Again, the friendship circles are within their caste. Uh, but despite this level of segregation, we don't find that Indians see caste uh, discrimination as a widespread problem in India. So just about 20% of Indians say that there is widespread uh, discrimination against uh, Dalits in India. So now if you're a follower of Indian politics, and Indian media, you might be really surprised by that because the media is full of stories about discrimination against, uh, against lower caste in India. So how, how could that be? Uh, I mean, and that, that's just an interesting conundrum and a surprising finding. And one, uh, uh, one way to understand uh, the uh, views on caste discrimination in India is, is uh, segregation or is caste segregation considered discrimination in a society? Or is that just considered normal and kind of the way things should be? And even for lower caste, segregation is not considered discrimination. That's just, what else would there be, right? So, so this is a, I think another uh, interesting puzzle and one that if you pull on a thread that you keep, you know, you keep finding more and more that, that's intriguing.
1: Sort of like when you go to the airport and certain people can board at certain times. <laughs> it's that suffocation, Anyhow, um, if, if you were to do this over again, sort of what have you maybe learned that you would apply? I don't want to phrase the question in terms of what we do differently, because that sounds like you have regrets. What I want to say is, you know, in a future study informed by this experience, what might you uh, do or do differently?
0: Yeah, you know the, this study got a fair amount of media coverage in India, and uh, I, I didn't read all of it, but I read a lot of it, and I read an op-ed by Mukul Kesavan, who I subsequently reached out to over email because he wrote an op-ed in the Telegraph, and um, I believe it was the Telegraph, and uh, he was quite critical of the study, which is fine—that's that's his right. But he did make one really interesting suggestion, uh, and that is perhaps we could have further unpacked, or we could in the future. Further unpack this concept of discrimination. So, we ask people if they see widespread discrimination in India today against Dalits or against uh, Muslims or Hindus and so on. And we find that Indians generally didn't. I was just talking about that finding. But could, they, could it be that the concept of discrimination is just too broad, right, and too loaded? maybe what, what future studies can do is break that down a little more. Have you personally ever been denied housing because of your religion? Has somebody you know, um, not wanted to associate with you or not be friends with you or your children because of your religion or your caste? Maybe we could break it down a little more. We did do that in Israel. We asked a series of questions about um, specific instances of discrimination. And we also asked, has somebody expressed sympathy for you? or been extra kind to you because of your religion so that also could have been it could be included so this is why i think i mean scientific knowledge builds on previous scientific knowledge we open the gates to understanding there's something going on with discrimination in indian society that needs to be understood further and i do hope that uh, future studies uh, will build on this and, and will take it further
1: yeah the the um, uh... <sighs> You know, when we produce our work, whether research and will both produce research of different kinds, when we produce our work, um, certainly, at least in my case, I don't. Uh, I uh, my work is far far from perfect, and ideally, it's a beginning or an advancement of a conversation, and it's to be built on. I mean, uh, what is above critique? I mean, what everything can be critiqued, right? There there are flaws with everything, but for me, I you know, probably by disposition, but I tend to focus on the merits, right, or ways in which to improve it rather than what's wrong with um, a particular study. One thing that comes to mind is, you know, the idea or the word segregation has a very particular um, um, set of associations, uh, particularly in America um, and in the global consciousness. And one wonders if there are other ways to think of or describe that. I mean, it's it's an obvious word that comes to mind for the kind of work that you're doing. But one wonders if, yeah, there, there are other ways to express that or, or, or arrive at that. So, so these are things that are, are ongoing, and I like the idea of of this being a, a conversation to be continued. Who is I'm, this I'm report?
0: You, sorry, go ahead. You have a question. No, please go ahead. I'm really happy you actually. You brought that that one up because. um, and whenever I have participated in discussions that have been organized at universities kind of in the United States or with groups in the United States, this point always comes up. Uh, and, uh, or, you know, if, if there's an academic on a panel I'm doing in India who's based in an American university, they will bring it up. Right? But what I do notice is that Indians don't bring it up. Because you're absolutely right, this word has a particular uh, um, connotation in an American context or a Western context, which is not present, right, right in India. So when I was first thinking through, how are we gonna describe what we're seeing in the data? And I had shown my boss, uh, Alan Cooperman, the first draft, right, where I had used the term segregation. And Alan Cooperman's specialty is in the United States and American religion. He has not much background in India. I mean, the only background he now has is through this report. And he immediately said, Neha, how can you use this word? I think this is a very loaded term, right, and to an American ear, it's it's, it's too sensational. And so my (laughs) response to him was, well, we're not really writing this for Americans, (laughs) are we? We're writing this for an Indian audience. They are not going to have this uh, baggage associated with this term. They'll take it at face value. So I understand that for Americans, it might not work, but that's not the primary audience. So that's what I would kind of remind um, American readers of this report is the choice of terminology words, the way the findings are described is for an Indian audience. So some things are going to ring odd to you, uh, but uh, I guess what I would ask you to do is put aside your American baggage, right? And, and try to understand from an Indian perspective.
1: So you've actually preempted the question that I was about to ask, uh, and you've already begun answering it, which is, who's this report for? Uh, who, who, who is it? What is the intended audience report?
0: Yeah, we wrote it for an Indian audience, and that that was our primary primary goal. Uh, we wanted Indians to be able to see themselves in the data and feel like their story has been told. And ultimately, uh, the successes of the report is dependent on that metric. Right? If uh, we wrote it uh, for an American or, um, or Western perspective, we wrote it for a more informed audience, right? people who have at least some background about India. I mean, we're not trying to explain the ABCs of India here right, to, to somebody who knows nothing about it. Uh, for for an American or Canadian, we're appealing to people who already, you know, who already have a have an interest in India, have been following India for some time. So it's a more informed audience. That was the balance uh, we basically tried to try to strike in this report.
1: What would you say is um, the utility or the natural development of this
0: data? I think. What we aim to do is to hold a mirror up in front of society and uh, they can then see themselves reflected and our success would be in them seeing themselves reflected. And we mostly encourage them to t- then take that data and use it in their public debate, engage with it in a public way. So uh, what I'm doing with you right now and I, what I hope your audiences will do our success is in grounding the public debate in a set of facts. So, you know, and, and that doesn't have to be large scale. Like, I mean, it doesn't have to be like in the Indian parliament, right? If, you know, you go home for your Diwali dinner or your, you know, to the, uh, to the temple or to whatever holiday you celebrate right, in India, and you go home into your family and your dinner table conversation can be informed by some of this data, right? On a daily basis, like if somebody raises, you know, raises uh, an observation, oh, Indians are, um, and I can't believe, you know, in, in, there's conversions going on en masse in India, droves of, you know, converts uh, everywhere. Like, I hope that, you know, you could say, actually, there's a few report that says, you know, like you may be exaggerating. I mean, what you're saying is not wrong, but you may, you know, they there may be some some exaggeration there. Well, if you look at the numbers, you know, it's sort of like this. Or if somebody says like India, all the young people in India are just like not at all into religion. everybody, so I really hope that your everyday discussions can even be grounded in in, uh, more data because then we move the public debate forward, right? We begin with the same set of facts uh, and we can move the debate forward. And I hope that um, what we're able to do in India is tone down some of, the, uh, some of the heat on this topic, right, by grounding it in a set of facts. So we had an accompanying report that came out a few months after we released the um, attitudes report, and that was on the fertility rates in India, and the differences among religious groups in their fertility rate. And it showed uh, and the fertility rate of all groups coming down dramatically, and particularly for Muslims, fertility rates coming down quite a bit. Now to the point where it's very close to that of of Hindus. So when there is a public discussion about demographic change in India and religious change in India, I hope that adding data to that debate or adding a set of facts to that debate can bring down some of the emotion that gets, you know, inevitably, it's not going to go away. It's an emotional topic, as well it should be. I understand people's emotions in this. But I hope we're able to add another perspective based on data to that debate. And I hope that that can, that can help Indian public discourse, whether it's at the dinner table or at the level of policy and parliament and a waterfront of, uh, of public spaces in between. And for the academic audience, I hope that we're able to show that you can study this topic. And you can study it in a public way and talk about it in a public way. We were able to do it. And I was talking to you in the beginning of of, uh, when we began this discussion that, uh, you know, we were nervous. We felt like this is such a lightning rod topic. There's so many blanks. I really hope there's no reputational risk to the Pew Research Center from doing this kind of work. Twelve years later, <laughs> we have done the work. We've done it in a public way. We've talked about it publicly, and we have shown that it is possible to do this—to do this kind of work in India. I hope that more people will will carry on. Uh, we'll get some inspiration and will build on this work.
1: A noble and inspiring sentiment indeed, uh, one that truly resonates. Um, different orders, different reaches, different audiences. Yet our work is united insofar as uh, public discourse. Um, every once in a while, there'll be uh, a, a colleague or scholar who will be, well, well, you know, Raj Balkran, He's, you know, can we work with him? He's at so and so on their podcast. But more often than not, folks realize I have everybody in my podcast. <laughs> folks who who hotly disagree with each other, different factions, different approaches, and that's what it's all about. It's a safe space for conversation uh, in the public sphere. So I I very much appreciate. Um, the care with which you have produced this research and the courage it took to even go down this road. And certainly it seems at least to me that it was well worth the effort. Thank you. All right. So for those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with Nea Segal, who's Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research um, Center about her groundbreaking research on religion in India. The link is posted below. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening keep speaking to each other, and keep contemplating um, the impact of religion. Take care.